you pray with me, please? Oh, Lord, we say uh, we agree. We agree. Though our voices are not lifted so beautifully, we agree. And we give you thanks for the invitation to mercy that's greater than our sin. The great loving work of Jesus on our behalf, we give you thanks. And, and now open our hearts to receive it all the more. That your word would uh, serve its good purposes, that it would penetrate our most distracted minds and our most wayward hearts. Um, this we pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so um, last year for my 25th anniversary at the church, you gave Steph a trip. And uh, we took that trip this summer because she was nice enough to invite me along on the trip that you gave to her for 25 years of service to our church. And uh, we went to the Grand Tetons um, out west in, in Wyoming and stayed in, a, I'll give you a quick tour, stayed in a little cabin on the backside of the Tetons, kind of tucked away all by itself and did some hiking in places like this and uh, saw these kind of critters roaming all about, um, some of them right up close, as you see. Um, just absolutely, wildlife was everywhere out there. It was like going on a safari for us. We rented these and rode bikes with that as our backdrop, and uh, the Tetons are stunning, absolutely stunning. And we rode bikes for a day right along the base of the Tetons, and we rented kayaks, and uh, kayaked beautiful crystal clear lakes at the base of the Tetons. It was absolutely uh, stunning. Um, just, just absolutely beautiful. So today, and I think that may be the last one. Yeah. Yeah, here we go. So today, um, I want to talk about mountains, okay? Um, not geography, not geology, um, not the Tetons, but two mountains that are found in the Middle East. And uh, they are also found in the book of Hebrews in chapter 12. And so if you open your Bible to Hebrews chapter 12, we're going we're gonna to climb two mountains together today, or, or attempt to. And this is the last of the five great warnings, five or so great warnings, in the book of Hebrews. And it is a last desperate plea by the writer of the book um, to this little suffering church, this little band of, of Hebrew believers in Jesus. Um, and it is written to help them not turn away not fall away from Jesus, even though they may be suffering greatly. And so today, for us, it's a chance for us, especially those of you who are in a hard place, okay? Those who are facing some real hardships. It's a chance to make that same choice, to say once again with all the resolute power that faith gives us, that we believe that Jesus is greater And by the grace he gives, wherever he leads, we will follow. Okay? Wherever he leads, we will follow. Okay? We will trust him. 
And so today, um, that's what's going to be, be before us uh, in the passage that we're going to look at. Um, now, it is highly symbolic. It is rooted in obscure imagery of the Old Testament. So if you're new to the Bible, hang with me, okay? Um, don't give up. It'll all come together and the big ideas will be clear to you. Um, but the assumption here is he's writing to Hebrew people who knew the Old Testament like the back of their hand, right? And so there's a lot of assumptions and we'll try to make sense of them today. But the first mountain we want to climb is in Hebrews chapter 12, starting in verse 18, and it reads like this. You have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further message be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Okay, now, the mountain that the writer is describing here isn't named, but it matches spot on with a mountain in the Old Testament called Mount Sinai. And it's described in Old Testament in books like Exodus and Deuteronomy. Here's a description from the book of Exodus. See if it sounds similar to what we're talking about in Hebrews. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Sound familiar? Okay. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. And they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. And the smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln. And the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. And the Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. And the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain. And Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people. Lest they break through to the Lord to look and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves. Lest the Lord break out against them. Okay, This is quite a scene. And you can see that what the writer of Hebrews is describing matches up almost dot for dot with what happened in the book of Exodus and Deuteronomy on Mount Sinai when God came down. I like the summary that um, Pastor Kent Hughes gives of what we, just, what we just saw. He says, imagine what it must have been like to be there. The ground is unsteady under your feet due to perpetual seismic tremors. The sky is black in deep darkness except for the radiating forks of lightning in the gloom and the fire blazing from the top of Sinai to the heart of heaven. Celestial shofars blare more and more loudly in primal moans and Moses speaks and God answers him with a voice like thunder. The only thing that matches the incredible display you are witnessing is the seismic trauma in your heart. The people were visibly, physically assaulted with the holiness and majesty of God. 
this palpable divine display on Sinai communicated far more than any speech or written word ever could, and all Israel, young and old, could understand. In addition to providing a glimpse of God's holiness, the blazing fire atop Sinai emphasized that his holiness rendered him a judge, a consuming fire. The effect of these physical signs was to display in no uncertain terms the absolute unapproachableness of God. The mountain was so charged with the holiness of God that for a man to touch it meant certain death. Even if an innocent animal wandered to the mountain, it would contract so much holiness that it would become deadly to the touch and had to be killed from a distance by stone or arrow. This Mount Sinai is the mountain where God gave his law to his people. He gave, and as a matter of fact, you just flip the page from Exodus 19 to Exodus 20. God gives the Ten Commandments written in stone there on that mountain to Moses and to his people. That's where the old covenant, we call it, of the law of Moses was formed. And Mount Sinai, when this writer of Hebrews writes about it, he's thinking about that covenant. That's what it represents. The Old Testament way of relating to God, that old covenant under the law of Moses. So, says in in verse 18 you have not come to what may be touched blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them they are they are terrified even Moses who was permitted onto the mountain was terrified um Scholar Tom Schreiner says uh, the terror was not confined to ordinary Israelites. Even Moses, as the leader and deliverer of Israel, was filled with dread and fear. And then he says the Lord's holiness is so awesome that every person in the world is filled with trembling and fear upon entering his presence. And one writer says that this fiery image is a good symbol of God's exalted, dangerous holiness so the message of this first mountain mount sinai is clear right stay away do not touch the mountain lest you die don't even think about approaching god on your own terms or on your own merit your sinfulness makes it life-threatening for you to do so to approach the mountain where God has come to dwell. So Mount Sinai represents that old covenant, the law given to Moses, um, and what it means to relate to God in that um, scenario. But he, he starts this section with something really interesting. Maybe you caught it in verse 18. He says, you have not come to that mountain. So he writes to the church, the suffering church, followers of Jesus, and he says, you guys didn't come to that mountain. So this little band of believers, they've come to another mountain, he's about to say, that represents something radically different, a radical contrast. Listen to how the second mountain is described and how different it is from that first one. Verse 22, he says, but you have come to Mount Zion. So first mountain is Mount Sinai, right? 
Second mountain, Mount Zion. And to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn, assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. All right, that's a, that's a lot of description. Let's see if we can decode it a little bit. Okay, this mountain is named, right? It is Mount Zion. He also calls it the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. So there really was a Mount Zion. It was in Jerusalem, okay? It was a, a, a low mount there in the, in the city, but this is not talking about that place, that is a representative of another Mount Zion, a heavenly Jerusalem. So this he's describing, in contrast with Mount Sinai, the heavenly Mount Zion and the heavenly Jerusalem. Best description I know of of that heavenly city is in the book of Revelation at the back end, starting in chapter 21, verse 1. It goes like this. John has this vision. He says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first time in the, uh, the first heaven, rather, and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. And he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying or pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And then the verses continue about the next 15 verses or so are describing this city and it's stunning. This is where we get the expression streets of gold, right? The streets are made of gold in this city. They use jewels and rubies um, and things like that as building materials. This is an unbelievable city, whatever all that symbolism means. Okay. And it says, it continues in, down in verse 22 of Revelation 21, and it describes the city again. It continues, it says, I saw no temple in the, in the city, in the heavenly Jerusalem. For the temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. We have direct access to God in the city. The city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory, and you see my text is a little blurry, um, it will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So, two mountains, right? Mount Sinai, actual mountain you could touch, but you'd die if you did, okay? Mount Zion, heavenly mountain, super approachable. Now, the contrast is radical, okay? 
absolutely radical. And you see it in the description. If you come to Mount Zion, which, which believers in Christ have, he's saying, um, it's the city of the living God. It's a heavenly Jerusalem. There's innumerable angels and festival gathering and on and on and it's so different. Mount Sinai, you notice there were no people on that mountain except Moses. But here on Mount Zion, there are gatherings of saints past and present. Okay? They're all there. Um, the Apostle Paul is there. Mary, the mother of Jesus, is there. St. Benedict is there. John Calvin is there. Mother Teresa is there. Um, the, the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and the spirits of the righteous made perfect are there. Okay? This mountain is crowded with folk. Think about it. All who have believed and loved Jesus over millennia are there. All the heroes of your faith are there. It is like a giant autograph session, right? You can go over and have John Calvin and John Wesley both autograph your Bible right next to each other, okay? Um, and it says there will be innumerable angels, innumerable angels in festal gathering. Uh, honestly, Bible translators drive me nuts at points. I think they just need to put down their scribal pens and go out and get a life, okay? Um, the language here is also used to describe the parties that were held at the Olympic Games, okay? This is a giant, worshipful, angelic party, okay? Uh, a, a festal gathering. I don't, I don't even, what is that? Have you ever been invited to a festal gathering in your life? So... Angelic worship party is probably a better rendering of what is going on here. Um, but what a, what a contrast, right? Between Sinai, gloomy, dark, isolated, terrifying, Zion, party! And everybody's there. Everyone who believes in Jesus is there. And it says that they have come to God on this mountain, the judge of all. And um, that sounds a little bit like a downer when you put up right against an angel party, right? Um, but here, God's judging, and throughout Scripture, God's judging is a good thing to those in Christ. For us, it is vindication, not condemnation, okay? The judgment of God is good for us, um, and you notice on this mountain, the judge is approachable. You get to come to the judge of all. Because on this mountain, we have come to Jesus, who is the mediator of a new covenant that is a whole new way of relating to God. And Hebrews 8 talks about so Mount Sinai represents the old covenant. Mount Zion represents the new covenant, this new covenant in Jesus, this new way of, of accessing God that we have in Jesus. And uh, 
Back in Hebrews 8 this summer, you all looked at this passage. Uh, let's, let's look at it again. It describes those two covenants. It says, as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts and I will be their God. They shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So Jesus mediates a better covenant, a better way of relating and accessing God. And I... I love all the uh, contrasts between these two. Uh, I ran across an article by a South African theologian, Hulisani Ramatswana. Um, and I, I have to share this with you because I worked too hard all week to learn how to say his name. <laughs> but he points out all the contrasts. On these two mountains, right, you've got terror and joy. Uninhabited, inhabited. It's transitory. This is, this is the arrival. Okay. Moses as mediator. Jesus as mediator. We'll see Abel's blood versus Jesus' blood. Earthly mountain. Heavenly mountain. And we could also say foreboding and welcoming. See, if the, if the message of Sinai was... Keep away. The message of Zion is come on in. And we come on in by the blood of Jesus that we sang about this morning. Verse 24. Um, and to Jesus, we come to that mountain, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of of Abel. What, what is that? The blood of Abel. And uh, there are a number of ways to understand that. If, if you remember the story, it might help. Bottom line, Cain murdered his brother Abel, spilled his blood out on the ground, and it cried out to the Lord of Cain's guilt. So I think that Abel's blood speaks a word of guilt and conviction to sinners whereas the blood of Jesus speaks a word of mercy and forgiveness even to murderous sinners like the apostle Paul okay. who was he was like a, a Christian bounty hunter before he, he met Jesus and was freed from his sins 
Christ's blood speaks that same word of mercy to lying and lustful and fearful and doubting sinners like me and you. Okay. Hebrews 9 puts it beautifully. It says, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that come, Skip down with me to verse 12. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. No more sacrifice ever needed. We are eternally redeemed by his blood. And so, this is the mountain Mount Zion, that all of us who trust Christ have come to. We've come to Zion, not Sinai. And don't take it personally. I'm kind of referring to Sinai over here. I got a point somewhere. Uh, but by the providence of God, you might want to think that through. Um, so in a mountain of exuberant joy and a mountain of traumatizing terror... Um, clearly, clearly, okay, even if you don't know the background, you get the idea. This mountain is mo' better, right? <laughs> Way mo' better. Okay. And then he says this. He's described these mountains, and this is what he says. This is really the bottom line to this whole thing, verse 25. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. Okay. People, see that you you don't refuse him who is speaking to you. You know that this mountain is what they have come to, this beautiful Mount Zion. It's, it's a mountaintop experience that's offered to God's people in Christ. Don't drift away from that. Don't be half-hearted about it. Don't take it for granted. Don't misplace your trust in any system outside of Christ. Don't hope in traditions or that you're going to be good enough or that you're going to be spiritual enough. Um, don't give lip service to faith while you don't act it out. I like the way um, comedian Louis C.K. speaks of it. He says, he says uh, I have a lot of beliefs and I live by none of them. He says, that's just the way I am. They're just my beliefs. I just like believing them. I like that part. He says, I, I call them my little believies. And they make me feel good about who I am. But if they get in the way of a thing I want, I sure as heck just do whatever I want to do. Right? Don't refuse him who is speaking to you and offering you this life. Don't refuse him who is speaking by your unbelief and your disobedience to that voice. After he says that, he goes on and he explains why it is so important not to refuse to hear the voice of God. And he does this, he uses an argument from the lesser to the greater. And we use this kind of arguing all the time. This is how we make our, our case. For instance, we would say to someone, oh, oh, oh. Now that you're here in the triangle, if you love watching the Tar Heels play basketball on TV, wait till you go to the Dean Dome. We're arguing from the lesser to the greater, right? Um, 
we'd say, oh, oh, if you, if you like the appetizers at the Angus barn, wait until the steak comes. Okay? We're arguing from the lesser to the greater. If you like listening to Willie Nelson CDs, I, I'm sorry, I, I can't really, I, I can't help you with that. There's no greater. Um, but if you like listening to Handel's Messiah, imagine what it would be like to go and hear the symphony perform it live, even to sing it okay, in person. So you get it, you get the way he's arguing. That's how he's arguing here, from the lesser to the greater, and to urge those of us who have come to Mount Zion in Christ not to turn away, in their case, not to turn back to the old ways. Verse 25, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, God has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. So he's arguing here, right? If Israel did not escape God's judgment when they refused the warnings that they received on Mount Sinai as part of that old covenant, that old earthly covenant, how much less will we, we who reject the warning from Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem, if we reject that teaching, um, will we escape his judgment? No, no, no. In Israel, they were really bad at heeding the warnings. That's kind of the story of the Old Testament, right? These incredible warnings come, and they fail them. Deuteronomy 28 is one of the more explicit places that contains some of those warnings. If you, do, if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall be you in the city, and cursed shall be you in the field. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Cursed shall you be when you come in, and cursed shall you be when you go out. The Lord will send on you curses, confusion, and frustration in all that you undertake to do until you are destroyed and perish quickly on account of the evil of your deeds because you have forsaken me. And the story of Israel in the Old Testament is their experience often of those curses. Time and time again, they would wander aimlessly as a result. They would turn a journey of a week or two into a 40-year odyssey as they tried, tried to find the promised land. The ground one time opens up and swallows some of them alive for their disobedient sin. They would be defeated in battle. They would be taken into captivity. They would experience these curses because of their consistent refusal of the voice of God. You have forsaken me, God would say. And if they suffered for disobeying what is clearly a lesser covenant, what will we face if we refuse this new, heavenly, greater covenant? See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. Verse 26, at that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised Yet once more I will shake not only the earth but also the heavens. And this phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. 
That is, the things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. And so there is a, there's another judgment coming, right? And it is a greater judgment. It's not just going to shake the earth. It's going to shake the heavens. He's quoting an Old Testament prophet named Haggai here. And it refers, in all likelihood, to that great judgment at the end of time that comes um, on what's called the day of the Lord. A great day of judgment for all people. The Old Testament prophets and the New Testament apostles taught that's what it would be. Famously, the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 5, um, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. So there will come a great shaking, as the writer calls it. It's a great judgment that leads to the destruction of all in creation that has been marred by sin. And all that's left is a new heaven and a new earth, the rule of the kingdom of God. Everything else, everyone else, faces destruction. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. And who is speaking? It's interesting. Look, look at verse 24 and 25 with me again. It says, um, we come to Jesus, uh, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. So, of course, God is speaking. But perhaps more pointedly, it's the blood the sacrifice of Christ that's speaking. It is the offer of mercy and forgiveness and life with God for all eternity that's, that's being spoken by his blood. I love the way Revelation 5 describes it. Worthy are you to take the scroll, Jesus, and to open its seals, for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And if you refuse that word, the word of mercy and atonement for your sin in Christ, you will face judgment of the severest kind. And so he closes with these encouraging and sobering words in verses 28 and 29. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Don't fall away. Be grateful. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So rather than refuse the voice of Christ, we are to be grateful and worship with reverence and awe. Okay? So you think about these gatherings, right? It's the apex of a life of worship for us. When we gather on Sunday morning together as God's people, these ought to be marked with Reverence and awe. It's the language of humility. Ought to be marked by humility and great gratefulness. God has rescued us by an undeserved grace and given us access to Him and to the life He offers us on Mount Zion forever through Christ. So when we come to this service, we come humbly because this service, it's for God. 
much more than it's for me. So I am concerned, much more concerned, that I would worship with reverence and awe, that I would honor and exalt Christ much more than whether or not the service pleases me. I didn't like that song. It was hard to sing. Too many words. Pitch was too high. And the sermon was definitely too long. You should probably get used to that. Um, You see, it's really not about me, okay? It's not about you. You're not here with a scorecard. You're here to exalt the God who offers you this life and says, come, come to this. Come to me. God says to you, come to me. And then he closed with that zinger, that closing warning of judgment, because our God is a consuming fire. Thank God that you're not consumed by his judgment. Thank God. And so, if you're here today, it's, it's very likely that a number of you are here today and you are consciously resisting Christ. At some level, in some way, for whatever reason, maybe you don't want to give up something, maybe you don't want to do something. And so you read passages like they have to say, is it really worth it? To face the consuming fire of the judgment of God? To forego incredible, unspeakable joy and live in terror? So you have to choose unshakable kingdom or consuming fire. And so today... We have a chance, a beautiful chance again to say yes to God and all that he offers and asks of us. To not refuse the voice, but welcome it. Listen for it. Obey it. Um, To affirm together as God's people that Jesus is greater and that that we want to follow him. So today, if you're drifting, you've been drifting away from Christ, your passion and love for him is on the wane, this is a chance to right the ship. This is a chance to reset your course. And so what we're gonna do, as the worship team comes, guys, you can come on up. Um, Some of the guys are gonna spread, unfurl a banner down here on the floor. You remember it? We wrote at the beginning of our Hebrew series what Jesus is greater than in our world, that we needed him to be greater than in our minds by faith. And there's all kinds of things written on there. Um, But today you have a chance to come to that banner again and affirm for you personally that you believe that Jesus is greater. That you believe that Jesus is greater than any other hope, than any other pleasure, than any other satisfaction. Um, To come and express your willingness, because you believe he's greater, to say yes to his voice. And so there'll be some markers down here, and during this time of of worship as we close, um, just want you to make your way down here. You may want to find what you wrote at the beginning and put an exclamation point after it. Or you may want to just write something fresh. Um, But this is just one way. You, You don't have to come to the banner. You can do this in your seat. Say, yes, Jesus is greater, and I want to heed his voice and follow him. Some of you may be for the very first time today. And so I'd like to 
um, lead us in a prayer before we have this time. And I've shared it with you before. It's a beautiful little prayer. It's called the Taylor's Prayer. And if you'll stand with me, I'd like to read it for us together. It's, it was written by a Muslim convert to Christianity. His name is Mustafa, and he works in a shop for a man named Muhammad. And this is his prayer. I hope, I hope that you'll make it yours today. He says, Oh God, I am Mustafa the tailor, and I work at the shop of Muhammad. The whole day long I sit and pull the needle and the thread through the cloth. Oh God, you are the needle, and I am the thread. I am attached to you, and I follow you. But when the thread tries to slip away from the needle, it becomes tangled and must be cut so that it can be put back in the right place. Oh God, help me to follow you wherever you lead. For I am really only Mustafa the tailor. And I work in the shop of Muhammad on the great square. And we say amen. Jesus is greater. Amen.